0: Haere takamua, takamuri, kaua e whae. Be a leader, not a follower. He mehi tēnei katoa e huri mai o ki wahanga a Te ahi ka. Cool Murray, tene, I'm Justin Murray, and you're listening to Te ahi ka on Radio New Zealand National. When he saw plans of a church that he would be helping to transform into a whare nui, Manos Nathan figured, no sweat. Of course, that all changed when he was faced with the physical reality.
1: In essence, it was perfect timing when we came home. You know, you've got to look at that thing and say, what other forces, that's how I look at it, what other things are at work that. And Alec mentioned earlier. I think I caught the, the, this conversation saying, "I'll tell you about it." I thought I was co- coming home for about nine months to a year because yeah. they sent me the plans.
2: <laughs> How long were you here for? Oh, it
1: took years. But I, <laughs> I, I drove up here, and, and Marty and Dad were standing down here, <laughs> and they were smiling as I sort of saw you know, what the scale of the job was. Because you know, they sent me the thing of the little church. You know, a little church has a little porch. And I thought, oh, you know, Nine months a year. <laughs> Anyway, that's that.
0: Manos Nathan gives Marae Rakaraku a tour of the Fare that he helped transform from a church into a fāre nui at Matatina Marae Waipawa. Who would have thought that hangi stones were special? Not me, and I've been around a lot of hangi during my time spent at the marae. Well, Dr. Gillian Turner, Dr. Malcolm Ingham, and Dr. Bruce McFadden were part of a team that measured the magnetization of volcanic honey stones.
3: Well, that's actually started yesterday when we, we when they constructed the honey and set it all up for, um, for, for for burning today. And the intention is to have a an experimental honey where. Um, we are measuring the temperature of the, that the hangi gets to, um, some of the properties of the different types of stone that are used in hangis so that we can get some idea of, the, uh, of how these things respond to hangi in terms of their magnetic properties. And the aim of this is to um, measure over the last 700 years from hangis of this sort what the magnetic intensity has been in New Zealand. Um, during that time.
0: I join Dr. Bruce McFadgen, Dr. Gillian Turner and Dr. Malcolm Ingham at Waifetu, Lower Hutt. Nā reira, i aku raurangatira mā kueranga e haere a kine. That's what's coming up in tonight's edition of Te Ahika.
4: Te Ahika Radio New Zealand National
0: Māori fashion is celebrated at events like the Middle Moda Show in Wellington. That's featured the talents of Kitty Nathan, Shona Tafio, and it really paves the way for both established and upcoming designers. But what about designers without huge marketing or promotional budgets, where your fashion is known to a select few and, over time, is gaining a reputation? For Ron Tekawa, his fashion fused with Māori themes – Bright colours and his knack for transforming blankets into jackets and coats has built up a loyal customer fan base. On a cold Wellington afternoon, I met Ron as he was setting up his little stall at the Matariki Celebration Launch, Waifetsu Marai, Lower Hut. So, as part of Matariki here at Waifetsu, there's various stalls, and you've got the kai, you've got the fresh fruit, you've got the hangi, you've got um, a bit of everything, and you've also got some um, fashion. I stumbled across a very familiar-looking design, which, maraea, Rakuraku, owns a beautiful green jacket, and I'm here with the designer of that green jacket. Kia ora. Kia ora, Ron.
4: Kia ora. Kia ora Ron. Happy Matariki.
0: Aye, happy Matariki to you too. Now, um, Ron, where are, you, where are you from? Where were you born and raised? Um, in, in
4: Woodville, in the, in the Hawke's Bay. I'm Ngāti Porau. Yep, that's my stomping ground. I left there in 1986 to go off and have a life, and I moved back this year.
0: To Wellington?
4: No, to Woodville.
0: Oh, to Woodville! Which is where your family still are.
4: Well, it's where our Papa Papakanga is, but after the earthquake in Christchurch, I sort of just drifted around for a year. I went up to Gisborne and had a little shop there for 12 months, and and I loved it, but... um, I missed my family and it was the time to get back together, so I went back down to Woodville. How
0: long were you for, uh, in Christchurch, Ron?
4: Oh, I was at the Arts Centre in Christchurch for eight years. Wow,
0: well, eight years. Yeah. And so things got pretty, obviously, I can only imagine, pretty scary down there, which made you come home. Well, it was a time
4: to leave anyway, and being Māori, you're tuned into when it's time to... There was a lot of healing in Christchurch that needed to happen with the land and the people. And, and most Māori people I know were tuned into that anyway. A lot of women couldn't go to certain places in Christchurch without getting sick. or So um, it, things just came to a head where I knew it was time to uh, to, to leave because th- there was something going to happen there. There was some right. major healing
0: yeah. which, which
4: happened, yeah.
0: Yeah. If you were to describe somebody, um, you know, what your um, signature style or signature design is, how would you describe it? Well,
4: I think for my own wairua, I've, I've designed clothes that will bring the kind of people that, well, that I like. That'll,
2: that and in person?
4: Or? Uh, and every designer can do that. Like with my last range in Christchurch. I made clothes out of just recycled fabrics that you could wear to work. So I got lots of intelligent people, lots of open-minded people, librarians, school teachers, tourists, like my main main income. At the moment, I I suppose because I work so hard, I want just a limited amount that I can do every week. Um, I try and do work that will attract my own people. At the moment, like, I'm doing a fashion parade in London, but for me, it's not as exciting as making clothes for, like, the Ngāti Parāi woman that email me or stop in. To me, like, because I've got a background in costume as well, I'm not, I would rather, I'm more blown away making clothes for Māori women or my own people, not my own to whenua than I would be for like a, a, a movie star right, or, right. yeah, that's so, where I'm at at the moment. So okay. to do that, I have to keep my clothes, I think, under $170. I have, to keep my co- I have to keep my coats under 170 I have to keep my skirts under $70. So I've got a small budget for everything that I do. And I sort of figured out in the last 25 years what's different about us. So, I make the armholes bigger, I make my clothes bigger across the back, I take shoulder pads out, um, (laughs) you know, and I try and and I've got it down to what makes us comfortable. And because our people go for the cheap Chinese made, which is fair enough, I do too. That's sort of like where I have to stay in that, I feel like I have to stay in that price range with the coats. That's where
0: our mighty people are going.
4: Yeah, not always, but. Uh, I very rarely, with my clothes, have them over 170 bucks. My skirts retail about 40 between 40 and $70, but mainly 40
0: So, Ron, you're here at um, the Matariki Festival. You were talking about um, the communication between you and the buyers and the people that potentially want your stuff. How do they get your stuff? Online purchasing?
4: Yeah, mainly. And you have a shop in? No, no, it's mainly... Online? Yeah, you've got to know me.
0: <laughs> but uh, very elite. <laughs> it's not elite. It's just
4: a um, defence mechanism. After being open to the public in Christchurch, um, as a Maori as a Maori designer that's working with the public like so public, you, you can um, quite often end up sad, sick, hurt, I'm the only man doing this job in New Zealand, so you can imagine some of the reactions I get from some of the the people that have been, you know, some of the other stallholders or other designers, you have to be tenacious, you have to be absolutely unkillable, and um if you just let your guard down for a second, you've got to go away and heal yourself. Mm, so mm-hmm. I, um, that's why I come to the Māori festivals. That's why I go to Parihaka every year. That's why I go to the Maunga. So you
0: go to where our people no, are going en yeah, masse. Yeah.
4: yeah, because they, 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 help, they heal you. Yeah.
0: That's a really lovely, intrinsic way of, um, of, of, of describing your work, um, Ron. So um, we're standing, I'm standing right in the midst of your clothing, tell us about some of the fabrics that you use in in in
4: oh well i i I like working with natural fibers because i can be on the sewing machine up to like eight eight to ten hours a day and my hands will get raw if i'm sewing like nylons and plastics and stuff like that so and i like for a change for my for my customers to be able to wear natural fabrics so yeah lots of cotton and wool. I'm a really, really, really fanatic scrounger. People give me stuff all the time. So, I mean, I've got this range of skirts that are all made out of old men's suits and ties. And so, like I know going into the fabric shops, those sorts of fabrics start at $60 a metre. So it's just fun to be able to chop them up and work with them when.
0: Yeah. And speaking, I mean, there's some there of the... my budget. <laughs> some of the designs that I see, um, Ron, are um, um, old, the old-style blankets. Yeah. Which is... Which is um, well, a lot of I've people are using... I've seen some that are really overpriced, like... Yeah.
4: Well, I started, they $2. They were $2, $2 each at Christchurch. So I was just using what, what I had, like I'm a, a, a hunter and gatherer of the old school. <laughs> wow. so It might not be blankets. I mean, there's other things: um, old, old suits, um, wedding dresses that I've cut up. I'm just looking around. Old smurf curtains. <laughs> All smurf curtains, yeah, cool. Yeah, pashminas. Um, yeah, I'm a really, really good scrunger, So, but I still know what I what's natural, and what's nice to wear got a small budget that I know for each garment, so I'll, I'll, I'll get the fabric and I'll dye it, and I'll screen print it, and I run my own screen printing workshops called um, Decolonise My Wardrobe. At the end of July at uh, the 128 Social Centre on Able yep. Tasman Street to do the Decolonise My Wardrobe workshops there, which is basically just basic stenciling, but teaching people how to do it for themselves.
0: Sounds fantastic. Well, my last question is, um, you know, what do you think of... Um versus fashion, like, are there any opinions, like a Māori woman um, getting it wrong, are they what's your fashion
4: I, I just think we're so far from fashion it's it's not fashion anymore by the time it gets to New Zealand I'm not saying that we're that backwards but um, what we see as fashion in magazines that's like the new technology that's coming out every season, like the new kind of dye the new kind of fabric that we've never seen before and and, and the manufacturers are making the designers overseas use that stuff. It's a new technology whereas we're, we're dressing more for practical reasons.
2: Nice. And Comfort. We,
4: and I notice with Māori women we're dressing to um, define ourselves in a different way than the mainstream. We're not mainstream. And it's, and, it's, and we're always being reminded that we're not mainstream and in a way that like we're letting down the mainstream. So I've, I have a lot of uh, Māori Ngāti women that are public servants that I've had one jacket that I put out this winter that was $170, and it's a military-style jacket with weaving in it. And I must have sold maybe 15 last month just to professional Māori woman, and I've done the buttons myself out of resin, and they say, ka wha mātou. And they're just eating it up, because they want to define themselves differently. And... Um, that, that little military nip <laughs> it just gives them a little bit of a bit of a swish in their step
0: Kia ora, Ron Tekawa. and what a way to be accessible eh? Fashion coming to the people, koukia Now to get a glimpse into some of Ron's designs you can look him up on his blog we've posted the links on our page radioNZ.co.nz forward slash te'ahika. and we'll catch up with Ron in upcoming shows te <laughs> What a buzz it must be to carve a whare that memorialises your people and your shared history. How's that for an example of artistic fusion? Marai Rakuraku spends time with Manos Nathan at Matatina Marai Waipoa, learning about the connection with Hongi Hika and his whanau. There's artwork all over the
1: oh, Shall I just you the about walls? the
2: artwork?
1: Yes. <laughs> all right, we're in the dining room. A lot of the artwork comes about through different waninga that we've held here. Uh, in the case here with these more contemporary works, they were left by um, a number of um, artists that were here for uh, um, a teatinga hui. Uh, uh, what's, that, what's that? Well, was t- it was it? one of the uh, art committees of Toi Māori Aotearoa. Oh, yes. So the Teatinga Visual Arts Committee, and we had a... I think we called it a ranga tahui, but most of them, you know, they were, you know, artists. Uh, what's the word we used? You know, coming out of the woodwork, oh, yeah. developing artists. and So it's a combination of, you know, older nice. ones, younger ones, mentoring. So here's, here's one of yours. This is Saffron. Saffron, oh. Saffron, Saffron, tilatana. Beautiful. That's Amy's. Yeah. Yep. Your two see how I'm just trying I recognised it, it as
2: I was walking past going, jeez, I'd yeah. have these hanging in my house.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so we've got some Naties over here. This is um, Henare, Tahuti.
2: Oh, lovely. Oh, see
1: the toy wow, the and Andrea Hopkins <laughs> has been an here. Andrea. Oh, Andrea's an old friend. She's a former student of mine, actually, Andrea. I like her work. Oh, absolutely. She's mm. stunning. That's Chris Bryant.
2: Gosh, so these aren't the. These Simon are,
1: Kahn, yeah, no, there's, there's this, these are
2: this, the. <laughs> these are a certain generation of artists that I'm yeah, looking
1: at here. That's right. So this is. Um, it's one of the things we've done down the years here, you know, um, initially through my art form, you know, the ceramics and the carving.
2: So here's some cool.
1: Yep, there's some very early works. If you notice that one, you have a look at that carway or FIFA, You'll see that pattern reflected throughout the house. Oh, yes. That's the. That's uh, unique to this fano, that that particular <laughs> that particular design.
2: Lovely. Oh, this feels like the church.
1: This this was originally the, this was the dining room. You now I'm sure Alec would have told you how the, the you know after a while the needs of the iwi took over the needs yes. of the fano, so it changed. But originally this was the dining room. Now it's like a comadre relax room. I'm like the the Oh, beautiful. So the the um, the carvings in here, and the things I love about that's all, they're kauri. There's no um, there's no um, other stain other than kauri and oil. So And what's the originally, kauri is you know the natural red oak. This is what we used to oh, do yes. before you know paints and what have you. But it allows the thing about the kauri is it's. Um, you know the wood stays alive. You don't. You're not covering it with a, a false surface. You know you see the grain. You can see the adze marks. You can see the chisel. So there's a there's a big difference between a stain with a kohuway and a stain with you know other commercial products or paints. Originally the whole of the all of the carvings, the exterior ones, were, were with kohuway as well. But it became too onerous a task to keep oiling them. And you know you get put a few years on, and you don't want to keep climbing up that high. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now tell me the significance of the um, carvings there at the paut, Pautuarong.
1: Pautuarong. Well, it's, um, essentially that's a transition from, um, if you look at the kupu there, it's a transition from the warrior yeah, well, to the man. Tua
2: Pira ki tana iwi, whakamitua. Okay, so Tua anyway. Pira's the tupuna.
1: Whakamutua ki tenei mahitu patu tangata, kia mau ki te rongo pai, ki te kupu a te atua. Ko te oromo koutou ki te rau. And then he says muri oku kite boko," so I took all of that as my um i was told those words were given to me by an auntie, and I was sitting with this auntie and the reverend maori Marsden, and maori says, "Hey, give me your book," and he wrote them down, and he says, "You must use these on the fuddy and um you know there's that whole process of when you when you work in this realm and you're working with that mana tupuna thing is you know that nohopuku sort of thing, and that's really what came out of it for me it was the transition from one world into the next you know cease the practice of man's you know, you know it's it's really putting that warrior thing down or putting it putting it aside you know hold fast to the to the Christian faith, you know the word of God you know that's the way for you fellas from now on. So that tupano, and that's why he's holding that cross. So you have got that strong vertical thing happening mm. there. But if you look at the the cross that he's holding, you see that it's a living one. See all the tree, he's the leaves, down at the and the yeah. So it's a living message, you know. So, you know, for me, if I listen to the kupu with the Sermon on the Mount, you know, wonderful. But sometimes I have a problem with some other things that I find in the New Testament. <laughs> I think, oh, wait a minute.
2: <laughs>
1: but having said that, you know, it's this <laughs> thing of the the, the kupu. And we've been, we must be able to sort of find that, that uh, element in it that serves our needs and the needs of our ones to come, and that's the legacy that that, tupin, that particular tupuna left to us. And it's his—it's um, from his uh, daughters that you know I mentioned the sisters; they were the daughters of Kinaki Kinakitao. So uh, coming to the pu, uh, that whole vertical thing—that was one of the should we say one of the last slayings. The name of that pu is uh, the Kapua Mangu. And that, that musket actually belonged to Tuhari, who was Taho's son. Uh, Taho's the Pautoko here, mm-hmm. And um, that, that weapon was used to slay Hongihika. And so that goes back to a long, big corridor <laughs> about, you know, the the feuding that went on between... You
2: fellas mm, yeah.
1: the descendants of... We are the descendants of Maratea. That's his name, Maratea. And a lot of the a um, lot of the um, material that you'll find printed they refer to him as Nati Po. But he was Nati Po on one side, he was Teraro on the other, and Nati Po and Terero at, through different stages almost indistinguishable. Different you know different stages of the whakapapa. But anyway, so it's it's really about that transitioning. And so you see Chope Dakinaki's got different eyes, he's not wearing the bow. So oh, there again, no, it's, you see. So he's got it's. It's just a little visual mnemonic. When it comes to the patent oh, yes. <laughs> he's looking at the worlds with new eyes, yes. new light. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so, you know the the old tricks that carvers use, <laughs> but the, in terms of the the, um, old the tricks focaidle. that make
2: you think you're you're looking at it, thinking you see it one way, and it's like, huh, never seen yeah. that before. <laughs>
1: Well, you see this differentiation <laughs> on left and right. Oh, so geez. It's, 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 this is a visual oh, mnemonic yes. that works through the house um, with the particular patterns coming down particular lines of Papa. So it helps the kids learn the whakapapa. Mm-hmm. On one side you're a descendant of the Waiata, on the other side you're a descendant of the and those bloodlines coalesce in this individual. So things like that going on, they're decoding the whole thing. It's just that's just uh, one work uh this one here this <laughs> is
2: the,
1: yeah that's Tauho, his son tufare, and his daughter te Taua, and we descend from Teto te yeah, yeah left and right mm. yeah, so um for those um <coughs> for those that don't know that, take a look at the genitalia. <laughs> Figure they can it sort out. it out. They can work it out.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but in terms of where the designs are, there's um, stories that go with Taosi. It's all on the emphasis on the left-hand side. Yes. Because they said, you know, we know we know that Tupuna as, um, as a fighting ancestor. Uh, and we also know him as a matakite, a seer. And we also know him as a composer. So in Peitehurunui and... Um, and Natas Motete in those volumes there some of our tongue so there's an there's a ori ori and a tangi a tangi motu Um so those are tongue of left. but anyway the left hand business is to do with um, they said his killing stroke was left hand he was ambidextrous yeah. but you never knew what you know where the stroke was coming from but there's just a quarter of it the old people told me he killed with his left hand he was an infighter short Short club man, patu man. Mm. This is Toa. And uh, two things about it. I'll just talk about the Tokipo Tangata that he's holding. The name of that ads is Rere Ki Te Po. That ads still resides in this valley. It's an old argillite, Duff 1A type ads, a tanged ads, very rare. Now, what do you mean by resorting? The oh, n- <laughs> <Far>, no is still <laughs> holding It's still it. here. It's still right. in the valley, yeah. And that particular or that particular design is a very, very early. Um, it's what we call a kirikiore, but it's done in the stol- stone tool fashion. So before our people got hold of steel tools and, you know, the high high with the larger V, mm. you do the same sort of cut and it looks, um, you know, the cure that most people know. But this is how it originally looked. And you find it on some of our taonga, the um wakakoiwi. Um some of the old chests that were pulled out of Waimamaku. You know, there's something very
2: just want to touch these.
1: Is it a okay? shit? Yes these.
2: I do. I can see the the but, difference of it. Yeah.
1: Ay. It's also, it's nice to touch. It's you know, nice you touch, to touch. You touch a paint, a painted surface, it feels different. And the more you touch it, the better it'll get. You know, people's oil from people's hands and brings them to life. Oh, this is beautiful. They see, there's a bit more light coming in the door now. You see that you pick yeah, up the it ads. it's
2: so shiny and so
1: <laughs> You see the grain now, eh? Yes. Mm. Okay.
2: Hope you right with me touching your yeah, please. <laughs> oh, the tahuhu.
1: Oh you yeah, well, that, that that the you remember I pointed out. Yeah, that you vessel? pointed out the design. Yeah, so we um, I named that pattern uh, Tātai Hun because that was the kopapa of the fuddy really. Um, that's that's the brief I had from Uncle Marty and the others, you know, delineate the whakapapa, papa, pull us all together. So you know, become a uh, the whole thing was to teach us what we'd sort of walked away from or what we'd you know, about to forget. So in in essence, it was perfect timing when we came home. You know, you've got to look at that thing and say, what other forces? That's how I look at it. What other things are at work that I know Alec mentioned earlier, I think I caught the, the, this conversation saying, I'll tell you about it. I thought I was co- coming home for about nine months to a year because yeah. they sent me the plans.
2: <laughs> how long were you here for? Oh, it
1: took years. But I, <laughs> I drove up here and, and Māori and Dad were standing down <laughs> here and they were smiling as I sort of saw you know, what the scale of the job was. Because, you know, they sent me the thing of the little church. You know, a little church has a little porch. And I thought, oh, you know, nine months a year. <laughs> anyway, that's that. So um, there the are two things really going on, I, I mentioned. So we're the, now on the Maho. In the maho the tātai hono aspect um, was the first two things. You know, the, the pāu here or the pāu aruhi, this is tuputupu tupu or you go to our mati Fat relations to the South, they call them Tumu Fenua. And essentially what th- what's happening here marae, I is I'm pulling together the, the the stories of the Tupu Tupu Fenua lines who didn't come in a waka, you know, Tupu Tupu Fenua. <laughs> oh. Itani. Oh, mm-hmm. But um i created them him as a tupu, because oh. you know, growing oh, from the earth. I see it there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we call it, you know, it's growing out of Te Puna Marama, that's it. So he grows out of the puna. Um, there are a lot of are Hokianga versions that differ slightly from the versions further south, as does the name. But essentially it was pulling together that line, which is the ancient line, which is we've always been here. And then there's the Mahu Kitarangi line, which is, you know, the, the other part of the Whakapapa. And so, you know, that's drawing together the waka and um, the tangata Fenwa essentially. So one of my old aunties used to refer to the people up there that built the igloos. <laughs> what she's talking about is the little stone-rimmed houses. You know, the, the, They were dug out and then there was a stone wall and then you know, thatching over the top. You see plenty of illustrations you know, from the Marquesas and elsewhere. So those sort of places were in this valley at one stage. Not unique, plenty of other places in Otero as well. But um, in a sense, we were <sighs> – in a, in one sense, because they grew pine, it protected some of the places, even mm-hmm. though it's a problem for us now getting the pine off. Uh, whereas in a lot of other places where you know, the land was developed into pasture and whatever, the things were bowled over, ploughed over, whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you go over to Taiamai – all around there, you still see there's plenty of stone stuff under the duff, under the under the pasture. So these were very old Polynesian techniques that were transferred here and modified. So yeah, stone walls, stone boundaries. You know, with the first oh, yeah. time so, I was here, yeah. uh, is
2: it Rangiatia? Mm-hmm. and how they have yeah. the marae set out in yeah stone.
1: Yeah. So like when you go to – I remember the very first time I was in Samoa, in, in Apia, and we went up over the hill and down to catch the ferry instead of taking the coast road. As we drove up, I saw living, working models of what we've got here that we think of, oh, that's a, you know, it's a wahi tupan, it's an archaeological site, or whatever label you put on it. But in reality, they were living, working models, you know, dividing lines between different people's gardens, all that sort of thing so yeah no no big mystery really <laughs> anyway so uh we we go over to the um the pare, and that, that's mahu Kiterangi. with uh in our tradition it's fakato, not long my is the father of Romai, so there's Fakato there and mahudangi, so we've got the curvature of the of the a kua, <laughs> and there uhtara fetui Atani. so that 's the star path to bring him down. <laughs> So, um, you know, that's that's the basic symbolism there. So, essentially, we, we talk about uh, uh, Manu Manu Ka Moya Maero O Te Hinikui. Now, when we say Hinikui, Hinikui are the descendants of Tuputupu tupu The wife of Tuputupu was is, is Kui, and Te or Kui or Hinikui, those are the ancient people. So, you know, when Manu Manu arrives in this valley, there's a place up here with the other part of our whānau is called Fenua Ho. That's where he planted his feathers and so what you're talking about is the coming together through that marriage. So we are descendants of Manumanu Manu and maiaro that brings those lines together. Our Manumanu Manu descendants are really, go back to Muri Fenua. they're the, they the grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Tohe, of Oniroa Tohe fame and our people, that, an element of our people were called Ngai at that stage. Oh, yeah. So our waka connections in Murifenua Fenua. Akurahopo, Mahu, Kiterangi, and Takitimu. So there's all Murifenwa was a, a real big mixing ground. Mm. And so there's some of those um, hapu iwi elements, they morph into teroroa down here as descendants of Manu Manu, but they were their earlier origins. Mm. So anyway, I was referring to that the the idea of the visual mnemonics. Hey. Eh? Yeah. So on this side, if you look at if you look at the designs, you see there's one. There's six figures there. Yes. They're actually six siblings, and each of them has a different pattern, a different configuration. So there's
2: a six, six siblings yep, here and there?
1: Yep, yep. And I'll, oh, yeah. I'll just point out quickly. So, so you see the particular patterns there I mentioned on the po and all there, you know, how it came together with the left and yep. the right. Yep. Okay, you bring it down one more generation. That generation well, are, the, are the daughters of Tio Pira and you get right. the third one. So so there we have the tohu of a tupuna called te waiata, a Tupuna called Temonga, and the third one is Paikoraha, Koraha, Paikoraha. And out of those out of those three Terror bloodlines emerge um our great grandmother essentially. Mm-hmm. So Chopira Kinaki married uh married a woman called Marara, Marara Mahu from Waimamaku. And that was the coalescing bringing those bloodlines together. And our particular fucker papa didn't really get beyond a second cousin for many generations? Oh, yeah. it was that really quite tight? Mm. yeah quite anyway. so, you
2: know, there's, uh there's there's four there's four up there no, oh no
1: you got the three big ones
2: oh yeah,
1: yeah, it's, it's the true. three between the two, but there's the four sisters where the patterns are like say so take this figure here, yeah, this is the Waiata. Okay. So we know that these two figures are so, so when the kids learn those names, they well, what's the relationship of Dwight to do these two? Oh, yeah. Well, they're actually um, half brothers. <laughs> cool. That's why one's facing one way, one the other. Just visual, they're just Perfectly, little visual yeah. mnemonics, yeah, yeah, little, yeah. little things like that you build yeah. in. One, you keep their interest, you sustain the interest for a bit. And those ones that like to use their eyes have fun actually doing the looking and the searching. The whale story, okay, there again. Um, what we've done here is I use, you know, like the, you see a whale form usually on a pataka, eh? Yeah. But I've actually used that whale form down at that latter part because that's indicative of, you see where that line of poplar trees is over there? Yes. Okay, so there's, there's a big drain there that was dug by um, our tupuna called Tuhu, and Tuhu was famous as a cultivator. He's a warrior too, but, you know, he's, he's a man of many gardens, uh, both here and throughout Teroroo territories. And there's a big drain, and it looks like a D10 did it or something, a huge drain that was dug by hand. What's a D10, manners? Big bulldozer. <laughs> so this it was really, he was a cultivator, and this big drain was dug. And the story about the whale was his wife was a Teraroa woman from North Hokianga and um, a whale was washed up on the beach here. And, you know, the whale being a symbol of, you know, abundance and plentitude and everything. Also, in our case, um, his relations came down and for the, you know, the, the blubber and the bone and whatever else, that was the payment. And they worked here to help him bring, break in new land, break new gardens. So that's why you've got those figures up there with the court. Oh, yep. And this is, um, the Temonga was Tuahu's father, and that says tohu in there. So oh, you the yes. same, same thing going on.
0: Kia ora, Manos Nathan with Mariah Rakuraku at Matatina Marae Waipawa. As the song, sung by Dennis Marsh, suggests, Hangi Tonight sets the scene for a hearty sit-down, bringing all the whānau together and having a kai or a feast. Preparing the food takes a few hands on deck, men to get the hangi pit ready and probably most of all it takes good timing. So this is a familiar scene when you're catering for large numbers, say for example at the marae. But it was a hangi of a, well, different kind, held recently at Waifetsu Te Māori Gallery. An experiment to measure the magnetisation of hangi stones once the stones were heated and then cooled. Here's the setup. It's a cold Saturday morning, it's about seven o'clock, and the hangi pit fire is well underway.
3: I'm Bruce McFadgen, I'm an archaeologist with the School of Flower Studies at Victoria University.
0: Kia ora, Bruce. Now, could you tell us what's, what's happening, um, what happened this morning?
3: Yes, well, this actually started yesterday when we, we construct, when constructed the hangi and set it all up for, um, for, for, for burning today and the intention is to have a, an experimental hangi where um, we are measuring the temperature of the, that the hangi gets to, um, some of the properties of the different types of stone that are used in hangis so that we can get some idea of, the, uh, of how these things respond to hangi in terms of their magnetic properties. And the aim of this is to um, measure over the last 700 years from hungies of this sort what the magnetic intensity has been in New Zealand um, during that time because to measure magnetic intensity we need to have rocks that have been heated and cooled.
0: How are you measuring the heat inside this hangi?
3: There are some little devices that have been embedded in the stones and these give an electric current which is measured in the uh, a, a oh. device in the car there.
0: So, just in, in, in front of us, directly in front of the hangi pit, is, is, a, is a vehicle, and then there's oh, yeah, I can see little yellow cords there's, on these the grass. Cords,
3: well, they um, they only go so far off where they get close to the honey, <laughs> they turn into into special wires which are designed to withstand the extreme heat. And uh, because the honey will get to something like six or seven hundred degrees centigrade.
0: Yeah, and so these cords, are, um, there's a program that you're running in the, I can see a laptop computer in there?
3: Yes, uh, Malcolm Ingham is, um, from the university is is running that side of it, Okay, he's looking after that.
0: Now hangi stones have, is it magnetite? Is it called well, magnetite? Well they
3: have uh, minerals in them which are uh, magnetic, which which respond to the earth's magnetic field yes, they're um, ma- they magnetic.
0: The hangi stones that are in the pit at the moment where were they sourced from?
3: They were sourced from a number of places. Uh, volcanics from um, Taranaki, uh, East Coast, um, from Wellington, Northwest Nelson, uh, around, uh, just generally around the place. They're not all volcanic rocks, some of them are sedimentary rocks. Um, but we want to get a reasonable range of rock types to see just what their response is. And uh, <laughs> it'll give us an idea of what we can expect when we, when we excavate archaeological huggies. Um, in order to measure their stays.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. I'll be talking to you a little bit later on. Right. Thank you. I'm
5: Julian Turner from Victoria University, and uh, I, my research subject is the Earth's magnetic field. You've used a compass. I've used a compass orienteering when I was 13. Excellent. Well, that's where I come from, too, orienteering. <laughs> <laughs> and every orienteer knows that the compass needle points towards north. Um, but that's not true north. That's magnetic north. And in New Zealand, true north and magnetic north are about 20 degrees different now, but not always. When Captain Cook came here, they were about 14 degrees different. When Abel Tasman came here, they were about nine degrees different. And unfortunately, we don't have any measurements going further back than the time Abel Tasman came here 400 years ago. Um, now, Earth's magnetic field, which makes the compass needle point north, uh, its source is in the core of the Earth. That's about halfway towards the centre of the Earth, where we get to the core, which is made of liquid iron. Uh, and it's being turned around all the time by the rotation of the Earth and by the fact that it's hot, hotter than that fire. <laughs> um, and so that the heat is actually making the liquid move as well. So the result is you've got a complicated pattern of movement in this liquid iron. It's like a cauldron. Uh, And that makes electric currents and electric currents make magnetic fields. And that's why the magnetic field is changing because the currents are changing very slowly over time. So where does this come in? Hanging Hanging. stones, yes. We, We think that Hangi stones from ancient hangis, archaeological hangis, which may go back six, 700 years since the, the Māori started uh, using the practice in New Zealand, we think that if they are magnetised at the last time the hangi was used, then that magnetisation and the age of the hangi will give us a point on that master curve. And how do you read that date? We take the hangi stone, we take a sample from it, and we measure its magnetization in my laboratory at the university. <laughs> so what we're doing today, is, it's like a, a feasibility study. It's like an experiment to prove uh, that the hangi stones can become magnetized in the direction of the magnetic field uh, and uh, that we, the whole experiment works. And so, so one thing that's crucial then is that in the hangi process, the stones are heated up to a high enough temperature that when they cool back down again they become magnetized. And that temperature is about 700 degrees centigrade. So the first thing we did was uh, we took one of the stones which Therese uh, got for us, in fact one from the Mohaca, which uh, her far now prize as very, very good hanging stones. Uh, and we've placed a temperature sensor in that stone Uh, which is in that fire right now. Yes, which has been read. (laughs) And is being monitored via the cables to the computer. And uh, the fire has been going for about an hour now. And that stone has reached a temperature of 1,100 degrees centigrade. Higher than you expected? Higher than I dared to expect, yes. (laughs) But I should have believed Therese and her... um, People doing the the hanging because they told me that those stones go white hot. And I have to to admit, I I wanted to see that before I believed it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the signs are good at the moment. The signs are really good. So when the stones come up and it cools, you said before, uh, Gillian, that it. So when you say magnetize, does it magnetize to today's magnetic field? field. Yes.
5: The magnetic field is around us all the time. You can't see it, uh, but it actually reaches out to um, about three or four times the radius of the Earth, so out into space, and that's protecting us from a stream of charged particles that come from the sun all the time. And if the magnetic field wasn't there, deflecting those charged particles around the Earth, if they hit us on the surface of the Earth, then there would be no life here. So it's crucial to yes. the
0: life on the planet. Back to the hu- so back to the hangi stones um Gillian because I've been around hangi stones quite a large part of my life with you know more <laughs> familiar Yeah, but who would have thought that hangi stones are
5: magnetic. Magnetic. Well, volcanic rocks and uh, I understand from my Maori colleagues that volcanic rocks are favored for hangi stones. Um, they contain um, small amounts of magnetic minerals. Now, rock forming minerals that are magnetic. There's one called magnetite, there's one called hematite. They both contain iron, are oxides of iron. Uh, and they, they make up maybe 5% of the rock. OK. Uh, and they are what become magnetised, just like the needle on a compass. So, we watch those stones fall to the bottom of the, the hangy pit. Uh, and they're still, they're, they're too hot to be magnetised at the moment, and they need to be cooled down. So obviously. It's, it's while they cool down, while the food is in there cooking, uh, that they become magnetised. How fantastic! So while we're looking forward to eating the food. <laughs> those rocks are doing the science for us.
0: How many how many stones are in there? That, from the
5: experiment? oh, we didn't count them. Oh, okay, um, no, we we put um, maybe about twelve. Uh, we have uh, some from the Mohaka, yep. from Taranaki, from Ruapehu. Uh, we have some from the Orongorongo River, uh, and we have some from the Otaki River. So the geologists would tell you those are all quite different stones.
0: Mm. <laughs> and Mohaka yeah. is winning it at the moment. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, there are, there are also a lot of extra stones from Mohaka, um, which Hawir and his father have provided for us. To make enough stones to have enough heat uh, to
0: cook all the food, because Therese has 100 packages of food. So when the stones are cooled, will you then take them back to your laboratory? Yes. Yes. Yep. When you do when you do that particular um, testing, will it tell you how old the rock is? Uh, no. No.
5: Um, obviously, we don't we don't want to date. Uh, this. It's, it's not the age of the rock we're interested in, it's the time at which it was last cooled. So it's the age of the, the last use of the hangy pit. So when we go out to an archaeological site, uh, that's what we we'll would be looking for a date for, is the last use of the hangy pit. Uh, and we're hoping that with the archaeological sites, there'll be sufficient other material um, that we
0: can get, say, a radiocarbon date. I'm here with uh, Tautoko Rātū, and it's not only about the science, it's about the kai, of course, and uh, I'm sure the, the, the whānau gathered here today will appreciate a nice kai uh, ready at about, what, 12 or 1 o'clock. Uh, kia ora, Tautoko. Mō Morena. Morena what time did you get up?
6: Uh, 5 o'clock this morning, bright and early, getting ready for our Matariki Puanga Day.
0: Yeah, too much, all right. I do hail from Wellington, from Pōneke.
6: Hail from here, wife for two, yeah, just across the road. Uh, so our Papa Kānga, all right yeah.
0: Choice. Now, um, you're, you help prepare some of the kai?
6: Yeah, we help prepare the kai. So, uh, as, as you understand, some people may not understand, uh, the Māori New Year is the coming of Māori New Year, and it's a time of celebration, time of reflection, and also a time to gather and festivities, and kai is a part of that, it's part of our culture.
0: Kai ticket though. And, and you've got, uh, how many, you've got some pre-packaged hangi yes. so um, you know some whanau put all the clean baskets put put cloth over but we're not doing that today we're doing the whole prepackaged I suppose um, it's the more convenient way of serving hangi, ne?
6: Yeah, more convenient, uh, especially when we've got people to feed, however, um, yeah, I guess the hangi come about, because we were having the event today, uh, cross paths with uh, Mr. McGregor over there and yeah. Therese McLeod, yes. um, who were looking at somewhere to do a hangi, so we invited them along to do it here at our Matariki Day, and so with that, we're putting 50 hangi in, they're putting 50 hangi in, and just to feed our manuhiri, and alongside with the um, professors in and other educational stuff. From so it's just a
0: coincidence that there is a, um, an experiment um, held here. We're just directly outside Te Māori Gallery in Waifetu, and um, immediately to the right is the Matariki Celebrations. Che, too much,
6: eh? Total. Oh, kaupai, yeah, it can't be a long time since we had a festival on, on, on this um, little park area. Because usually it's
0: te, at Tefitsi Park, is well,
6: that right? Uh, yes, yes. Terao te Tarukura is, is usually run is, uh, run annually in February, uh, Waitangi Day weekend. and that, But it originally started here on the little park, so it's grown from 20 years ago from here to a big 30,000 plus attendance every year. So these, does the, this kai is going in real soon. Kai's about to go in. Yes, just repacking these baskets. They're a bit jam-packed. We've got too many hangi or not enough baskets. Either or, how do you play it off? But we're going to put it in by 9 o'clock and hopefully it's out by lunchtime.
0: Choice. ora, back to So Gillian was just um, looking at the sensors that are attached to the hangi rots and it went from about 1,100 centigrade down to about 300 Jillian, were you just reading the sensors? Yes,
5: Yeah. it looks as if maybe one of them is pulled out.
0: One is one pulled out? It looks out. as if
5: maybe the sensor is pulled out.
0: Oh no. Uh,
5: yes, we have an end. Just a moment. Just a moment. Okay.
0: So right now the um, hangi is um, prepared and the clay is cooking and it should be really about 12, between 12 and 1 o'clock. So right now it's, um, it's a waiting game. Aira, it was a waiting game. That was about uh, 10 o'clock that morning. Now, later on, I managed to catch up with Dr Gillian Turner at her office. Kia ora, Gillian. Kia ora, Justine. Kia ora. So it's been about a week and a bit since uh, the um, Matariki slash experimental hangi um, kaupapa at uh, Waifetu uh, Marae in uh, Lower Hutt, and of course I was there Early in the morning, and I spoke to Dr. Gillian Turner then. So we're here about a week and a half later. Well, it's, it seems a long
5: time ago. A lot has happened since then. On the day, uh, as as you know, we had thermocouples in two of those hanging stones, and uh, we were uh, we were frankly amazed at how quickly they heated up and the temperature they reached. Uh, as uh, on the plots I've shown you, they, reach, uh, they reached about uh, 1,000 degrees centigrade after less than an hour, uh, which was really amazing, but really good from our point of view because it meant that any previous magnetization in those stones was completely eradicated. Right. Uh, and so when the stones cooled back down again, they gain a new magnetization in the direction of the magnetic field at wi for 2 on that Sunday. Yes. <laughs> um, what also surprised us, though, how, was how long they took to cool back down. How long they took... And so, so what does it tell you about Hangi? They knew how what they were doing about cooking. <laughs> it's a great way of cooking, uh, but also a great way, we hope, of recording the Earth's magnetic field, uh, which is what we're after and what the experiment is all about. So we, after about two hours, we Um, removed the remains of the embers of the fire, uh, made sure that the the rocks were in the bottom of the pit, still well above the temperature at which they get magnetised, and in the traditional fashion layered ferns and hosed the ferns and uh, placed the food on top and uh, buried it for uh, two to three hours of cooking. After that, our thermocouples were still showing 800 or 900 degrees, Uh, Still above the temperature we're interested in. The food was lifted. Uh, We all had a wonderful feast. (laughs) And we covered the stones back over for safekeeping while they cooled. On the Monday we came back and they were still at 800 degrees. On Tuesday we came back and they were still at 800 degrees. And on Tuesday I said, well, perhaps we could take some of this insulating soil off the top to let them cool so that we can get at them. Because the dirt was in- Because the dirt was a wonderful insulator, as the Maori knew when they designed their hangis in the first place. Why not just cool them down with good old garden hose? Well, we wanted to, the, the whole point of this experiment was to reproduce the traditional hangi process uh, as closely as we could. Uh, and the first process, first process was to uncover them. Just like uh, any archeological dig, you have to be very, very careful to remove the ashes and the dirt very carefully so that you don't disturb the stones that we're interested in. Uh, having done that and tried to identify the stones which we had put in, um, what we need to do is uh, record their orientation. Because we're going to measure the direction of their magnetization, and we hope that it's going to be in the direction that we measure for the magnetic field at 5 or 2 on, on Sunday, Sunday um, we need to know the orientation of the stones before we lift them up. And the way we do that is um, I made up uh, a mixture of plaster of Paris, quite a firm mixture of plaster of Paris, and put a cap over the, uh, the top of each stone and uh, level that horizontal, with uh, a a little spirit level. Uh, And then when the plaster of Paris is dried, mark on there um, a north line with a magnetic compass, Uh, and just in case there's anything wrong with that, maybe if the rocks were so magnetized that they affect that, uh, I also used a sun compass. Uh, So I have two lines on each of those, marking the orientation, the magnetic and the sun compass. And it's what is here in um, York. That's what you see here. <clears throat> uh, this is one of the Mohaka boulders. Uh, that's our number eight. Number seven is... Um, uh, oh, number seven is from Ruapehu. So uh, that's a volcanic rock from Ruapehu. Um, and as we go through the rest of them, there's uh, one from Taranaki. Mm-hmm. Um, Therese from Maori Studies oh, yes. uh, kindly brought us one back from Taranaki. What we want to do now is to go to archaeological hangi sites uh, and collect rocks from there uh, with a view to getting a measurement that will tell us the magnetic field at the time the hangi was last used. Uh, And if that is several hundred years ago,
0: that will tell us what the magnetic field was like several hundred years ago. So you basically want to find the magnetization of these um, rocks at the time, which was Sunday at Waifitu Marae. That's right. They've since obviously cool down and, and the results you said earlier will be a couple of months away.
5: Uh, well I have a student starting work next term and her first job is going to be to drill small specimens uh, out of these rocks which we can fit into our magnetometer uh, which will oh. measure their magnetisation. Uh, so that's her project for next trimester.
0: What do you, what do you hope to conclude this
5: um, experimental hangi? Well, I I hope to find, in an ideal world, that uh, each of these stones uh, has a magnetization that uh, gives us nice results and from which we get the strength and the direction of the field. (laughs) Uh, And that will then give us confidence that when we do go out to the archaeological hangi, we have a method that will give us the strength and the direction of the magnetic field, going back over the last 600 or 700 years the whole of the time that Māori have been here doing hangis. It's all very Three years down the line, we may be able to tell you whether we've
0: achieved that. <laughs> Dr Gillian Turner, thank you so much for that update. You're welcome. Thank you. And all the very best in your research. Kia ora, Dr Gillian Turner. And earlier in that interview, we heard from Dr Bruce McFadgen, Dr Malcolm Ingham and Tia Tiawa radio host Totoko Ratsu. Now, to listen to that kōrero again and to the show or previous shows, you can head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash There are some photos posted up as well. Next week, I'm at the National Tertiary Teaching Excellence Awards and Mariah is back in Taranaki with Aoteo Utanganui Kapahaka performers Ivy Phillips and Robina Witchman. Last week on the show, Marae provided a fly-on-the-wall experience of what it took to compete at top-level kapahaka by following Aotea Utanganui Kapahaka Group. This week, Taranaki Whanui farewelled John Nyman, the chair of the Pātea Māori Club, who was at the very forefront of performing arts and language vitalisation in South Taranaki. His tangi was held this week at Aotea Ruamarae. Nā reira, he Fanui tēne ki te o Taranaki Maunga, a kia koutou katoa Ruanui. Whakawhiti atu tātou ki te rohe o This week, Timi Te Hiuhiu died, the younger brother of Tūwharetoa Paramount Chief, Tumu Te Hiuhiu, and husband of former National Cabinet Minister, Georgina Te Hiuhiu. He died in the early hours of Thursday morning.
4: Hoi uh, anora uh, he paropora ki tēnei, uh, kia koe e Timi, uh, koko e te manukura o te rōpū, uh, manukura o te wharewaananga o Waikato, ko haere koe ki te a kotou maunga ko maunga ka ora ngana Koto kua chua huite nei ra prepa yako e nei kamahue huya to whihine a kurea tomari ki kamahue hu huya Atumu to tua kana atun haere haere
0: haere temara Pau temara there not too hoi with a mihi proproaki or a farewell to Timoti, or better known as timi the hiohio who died this week he expressed his condolences to the iwi of tufaretuah which is the iwi from the tobal region and he also offered his aroha and condolences to the family fano of timi hemi hi mahana te naikanga kai kōriru itinai wiki minga kai ra wiki wiki mi hini hoki mai haitira ratapu ma te fano atiahi tātou katoa moidi ora